Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. As you all know, in addition to exciting monographs, we also cover um, exciting developments in the field of Indian religions broadly as uh, as affecting other subfields and other movements. I have a, a very fascinating and special um, episode of the podcast today featuring um, Andrew Bartle-Smith from the International Committee for the Red Cross Global Affairs Department in Asia. And also Dr. Walter Dorn, uh, who's Professor of Defense Studies at the Royal Military College. Both of these guests um, are are, uh, looking to the Hindu world for violence and ethics of violence in a way that brings it into meaningful conversation with global discourse. And so I'll let them speak more to their work. Um, Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Raj. Nice to be here. (laughs) <laughs> nice to have you. Um, Andrew, maybe you should go first and explain for us the ICRC, the International Committee for the Red Cross. What is that? Yeah, many thanks, Raj. Yeah, so I'm from the International Committee of the Red Cross, um, otherwise known as the ICRC. Um, basically, we're um, a neutral, independent um, organization, a private organization based in Switzerland, but we have a very particular mandate from the international community. So um, basically, we were founded in 1863, and we have a mandate nowadays from the international community through the Geneva Conventions to assist and protect victims of armed conflict and also to promote respect for international humanitarian law, otherwise known as the law of armed conflict. Um, And we are active around the world. I'm based in Geneva, but we are active in conflict zones and many other contexts around the world. Obviously, uh, we're particularly busy in contexts like Afghanistan, Myanmar, uh, Syria, um, etc. And, uh, and but um, yeah, we also have a presence in over 100 countries um, because you know we, there's a lot more we do beyond the core conflict-related stuff. Just say a bit more about uh, two things in whatever order you like. One, the idea of not being being neutral, or, or whether whether there's an affiliation with a particular nation or religion or or, or 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 movement. You know, talk a little bit about that, and and if you will say a little bit more about what you do uh, when you're involved in these armed conflicts. Yeah, so um, the ICRC works in a very particular way. It's pioneered a model of neutral, independent humanitarian action, according to which we try to engage in a neutral and impartial way with all parties to armed conflict. So in Afghanistan, for example, or in, in Myanmar, we try to engage not just with the government and with these state armed forces, but also with opposition groups, um, non-state armed groups that might be fighting with them. Um, And in order to be able to access um, conflict areas and to assist um, the victims, 
um, you know, we need to have the, com the confidence of both sides. Um, it's not always easy to do, doesn't always work perfectly, but um, it's a tried and tested model that has um, proven effective in, you know, for, for many, many years now. In an in international armed conflict, our mandate is fairly clear. Um, we can, you know, the Geneva Conventions are well developed in that respect. Um, but in an internal armed conflicts, which proliferate nowadays, um, it's a little bit more complicated. Not, um, not all of the provisions apply that apply to international armed conflict, but still it's, uh, it's sufficient for us to be able to perform effectively and we normally um, offer our services to the concerned governments and uh, you know, find some sort of way to work um, according to our mandate. In terms of what we do, um, you know, we assist victims of armed conflict. So, you know, obviously, um, we that that includes people who are wounded. Um, so, we assist with their treatment. We sort of we run hospitals, or we support hospitals, or we first aid. Um, we we provide support to those who are displaced, whose homes are destroyed, etc. So, you know, um, rehabilitating water systems or agriculture, all of that, anything that's, that's linked to conflict. Um, we, we we do that, but um, I think what might be particularly interesting for your listeners is that you know we have a mandate in particular to um, through the Geneva Conventions to um, make sure that prisoners of war are treated correctly, that they're not tortured, um, detainees as well, um, you know, and so we we do a lot of uh, visits to places of detention. That includes that has included Guantanamo, for example, um, and uh, to make sure that the conditions uh, are okay, that people are not being treated badly, to reunite people with their families and stuff like that. So, at the same time, we also do bilateral interventions. You know, so if if uh, one party to conflict has violated international humanitarian law, yeah, it might you know more or less seriously, and it, it, this includes war crimes, of course, then we will make um, confidential interventions with that party um, you know, and, and try to persuade them not to do it again or to take action, you know, to... Uh, um, um, of course, you know, there are many organisations that speak out against such abuses, but we work in a more discreet manner, generally speaking. You know, we try to have direct contact with the parties to conflict, so we have access, and hopefully we're able to, you know, to, to have some influence on the behavior of those involved in armed conflict. You're, you're doing the work on the ground, so to speak. Exactly. Yes. Um, you mentioned a very important um, thing, concept, uh, body, the um, uh, IHL. Uh, in passing, um, what is international humanitarian law and how is it, you know, how is it adjudicated? Yeah, well, international humanitarian law is, is very much tied up with our, with our mandate. So, um, you know, the ICRC was founded in 1863, and this was inspired by Henri Dunant, a Swiss businessman who, was a, who mobilized um, local people to assist the wounded at the Battle of Solferino in northern Italy in 1859, and he wrote a book about it, and this inspired the creation of the International Committee of the Red Cross, and this led to the creation of national societies, the American Red Cross, the Canadian Red Cross, etc., around the world. 
Um, and it also led in 1864 to the um, ratification of the first Geneva Convention. Um, and the, the aim was to, to uh, mainly to assist, to make sure that the, the wounded would be assisted by national societies or, or bodies in, in different countries that, be, that the, uh, the armed forces, you know, would take responsibility as well for this. And since then, I mean, there have been many other treaties that have been passed over the years. Um, and, uh, you know, our work now is based largely on the four Geneva Conventions of 1949 and their additional protocols, which are far more developed, of course, than the early um, instruments. Um, as, as well as treaty law, there's um, customary international humanitarian law, which is important because it, it tends to apply where, where treaty law falls short, particularly in the case of um, in, internal armed conflicts, non-international armed conflicts. Um, so yeah, um, in international law as such, international humanitarian law as such, um, has, the, the impetus has been largely from the, you know, the, the founding of the ICRC and the passing of the first uh, the ratification of the first Geneva Convention, but it has a long lineage. And you have Hague law, which concerns the conduct of hostilities. You have Geneva law, which is more about the Geneva Conventions. But of course, before this, there were codes like the Lieber Code, which was, you know, of, of the um, United States military. And of course, um, yeah, what's interesting, and the reason why we look at religion, which is what we perhaps going to talk about later, is that you can trace the lineage of ICRC in just war laws and, and, and various other um, provisions to limit the suffering of armed conflict that we can find in many different cultures. Now, you've, um, you've been interested as of late, or perhaps ongoingly, uh, in, in, in Hinduism and what Hinduism might have to say or contribute to this work. Could you say a bit more about that? Because that is what um, I understand inspired you to, to um, tap on Dr. Doran's shoulder <laughs> for some work, and we'll hear from him in a moment. But, but what is this interest in Hinduism that you have? Yeah, well, the first thing to say, perhaps, is that, um, you know, traditionally, the ICRC has always engaged with religious groups and religious leaders, but it's not necessarily done that so systematically. Uh, and so what we do in our, our Department of Global Affairs is not, not only do we support the delegations to engage more effectively with non-state armed groups, that's one aspect, but we also look at religious circles because um, and um, the role of religion uh, in, in, in influencing behavior, you know, and it's, it's, it's a really important aspect of the of the battle space, of the contexts where we work. And we've learned over the years that um, engagement with religious circles is, 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 is highly effective. It's a very positive experience for us because it facilitates our operations. You know, we can learn a lot from people that, that are intimately connected to the context and can help us and can advise us and can help us mobilize assistance and all of that. But beyond that, you know, it's the values that matter um, and, you know, as, as an organization based in Geneva, um, that is, has a universal mandate, um, it, we, we are nevertheless 
essentially a Western organization and we really want to reach out to different cultures. So I'm based in Asia and of course um, Hinduism, third largest religion in the world, very, very important, um, absolutely essential for us to engage with this um, in order to understand the context. And you know, we don't want to be just preaching international humanitarian law all the time. You know, it has universal applicability, it's important, but we want to learn also from other cultures and to see what they can contribute. And um, Hinduism is particularly a rich uh, resource in this regard. So for many years, actually, we've been wanting to, 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 to dig into this. We've, we've looked at Buddhism as well, and we've done a lot of work on Islam. Um, but um, yeah, this, is, this has been a sort of a long-term goal for us for many years. And it's just a question of getting the, pushing the institution in that direction. Yeah, it's a juggernaut that sometimes takes a little bit of time to, to turn around. Just uh, synchronistically or serendipitously, we um, I just interviewed uh, Jeffrey Long, who was co-editor of um, Nonviolence in the World's Religions. Certainly, it's well known that attitudes towards uh, war and peace, so to speak, um, are are entrenched uh, in the ideologies and the philosophies of of the world's great religions. Uh, so, unsurprising that you'd want to look there, and it it strikes me as quite noble that the outlook is one of conversation and even perhaps um, 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 enrichment of IHL by virtue of, um, of engaging various traditions. So you ended up tapping on the shoulder of Walter Dorn and you asked him for what? And when you tell us what you asked him for, we'll turn over and hear about him and his, his work. Yeah, no, thanks, Raj. I mean, absolutely. I mean, what's fascinating about the Indic traditions is this very strong renunciant tradition and, and the importance of nonviolence or ahimsa. And this is what struck us immediately, that, you know, the level of restraint, you know, during warfare and the, the, the unease about the use of violence was, was quite striking you know, when compared to other cultures. And so, when we're, when we're looking at IHL, which is a, you know, a body of law which basically accepts that wars can happen. You know, so IHL has nothing to say about whether or not wars are just. That's dealt with by another body of law, international law, just ad bellum. Um, but IHL deals with you know, the conduct of hostilities, what actually happens during war. And so you know, in terms of restraint, it's, we were fascinated by what um, the Indian traditions might have to, to say, and that perhaps they you know that they might they might in fact be very restrained, even perhaps with respect to IHL. So this was a conversation that we wanted to initiate. So we were running out of <laughs> we were always rather stretched in our department and as we can never do enough and we were running out of time and, and so I, my colleague Daniel uh, and I were chatting last year and we thought we've really got to how can we you know get this get this project kicked off hopefully fairly quickly because we're sort of running out of time to meet our objectives and my colleague you know Daniel searched around and 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 uh, reached out and, and found um, Dr Walter Dawn and yourself Raj and and yeah we were astonished by the uh, after some initial chats we've been astonished by the pace of the work and the, the, we already have a draft paper on this so uh, it's uh, we really hit the jackpot with um, with meeting both of you. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, uh, your check is in the mail, uh, Andrew. Thank you so much for that endorsement. <laughs> um, Walter, let's hear from you. What Your professor of defense studies, maybe tell us a bit more about what that's like and what your work entails, and then we can segue into how it overlaps with Hinduism, perhaps. All right, Roger. I'm delighted to be here with uh, Andrew Bartle-Smith. It's just, uh, the ICRC does such fantastic work on the ground, supporting humanitarian cause. And in my work as a professor of defense studies, I have to teach the ethics of armed conflict. We looked at just war theory and other aspects of, um, of the conduct of war and uh, the, the just war theory, including the um, justifications for going to war. And this overlap uh, with the conduct uh, during war is, is very much of interest to military officers. And so I teach military officers from Canada and about 20 other countries at the Canadian Forces College and the Royal Military College of Canada. And um, in this teaching, I have uh, the ability to do research in different areas. And I've been fascinated by um, the Hindu faith, the Hindu religion, and, and how, it, uh, how it deals with issues of armed, armed conflict. How does it deal with um, the rules of armed conflict? And uh, this humanitarian impulse that we heard uh, Andrew speak about so eloquently that drives the RC, ICRC is also driving my own work, trying to look for um, the ways in which their religions uh, put constraints on armed conflict, but also to look at them objectively to say, are, are they similar or are they different from what we've developed in the Western tradition? So obviously the Red Cross uh, through its name itself uh, suggests a Christian origin. And we, uh, we wanna look at, is this, uh, these rules of IHL, international humanitarian law that apply to the nations around the world either because of treaty where most nations have signed the Geneva Conventions or custom because it's so widely practiced that it's become uh, customary international law. To what extent are these shared with other uh, religious faiths? Because IHL is, is um, largely coming out of the Western traditions. And what we found uh, was that, uh, that there's a huge overlap, that there's, there's, really, there's a real story to be told here. And of course, when uh, the ICRC approached me, the first thought I, I had was, let me uh, approach Raj Balkaran and see if he can, uh, he can help out in this work because uh, he's the expert on uh, Hinduism and so many different fields. And uh, as a result of that, we, you and I did work and I hope you speak about the work uh, just as much as I do. But we found that there's um, a remarkable overlap, convergence between Hinduism and IHL, that the principle of proportionality in the use of force um, is in both um, both areas, the both uh, IHL and Hinduism, that uh, minimization of human suffering, that the sense of compassion, uh, that the care for survivors of war, these are all uh, parts of both traditions. And this uh, major overlap is, tells us something about the human condition, whether you be in one part of the world or another. <clears throat> And so we, we really wanted to explore this and, and, and look frankly at any divergences, but we found that the, the convergences or the similarities were much greater than the differences. So this was, uh, this was rich and, uh, and I think it helps us to, um, to reach out to people who, who practice Hinduism, say this isn't just a Western imposed system. This is really uh, an, an expression of, of your own fundamental values 
And so um, the rules of armed conflict as they've been laid out in international humanitarian law have such a large overlap that they can, um, that, that you can consider it uh, very similar to your own tradition. And so that those who are practicing armed conflict, including militaries and indeed guerrilla forces, um, that they uh, respect international humanitarian law more because they see the um, similarities to the religious faith of Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. You know, Walter, I'm glad that um, I was glad to to hear from you uh, last fall um, about this project, um, which really we hadn't worked together. Uh, it was a decade before that we published together. It was my very first publication. Um, we can talk about the circumstances of that, of that in a moment, but I was very glad to hear from you. I didn't have time for the project, but I couldn't dispense with with the desire to engage this project because it just resonates so much. The idea that the idea that we have such a thing as human values and human conscience, and uh, the idea that um, uh, the, the, the Hinduism has much to offer, you know, in this vein. Um, and so um, somehow by some, you know, uh, bureaucratic, administrative, organizational miracle, it all got done <laughs> last, <laughs> last time. Um, I think the miracle uh, was your writing skills, but go on. <laughs> okay, your check is in the mail too, Walter. Hang on, let me get my <laughs> check. <laughs> um, um, no, it was, it's, it's, it's really rich work for me because that's sort of where I live and I'm, uh, I've become more conscious of that in recent years that speaking to you know those interested on the globe about the world's traditions whether in a comparative sense or what hinduism has to offer it's it's it fascinates me to no end and it seems to me that not and, and you know i'm, I'm a uh, those who have heard the podcast or read or read my scholarship i'm a big proponent of looking at primary text first and even exclusively and then looking at secondary material otherwise one comes to the text with various theories and perspectives in mind. And so it wasn't such that I poured over IHL or any theoretical model or just worthy. It's just that I lived in the Mahabharata for some time, right? And then coming out with that familiarity and seeing, wow, you know what? This is a, a, a profound conversation partner to IHL. That was a very fulfilling experience. Um, uh, and as I say, it wasn't, our first, um, the first was, uh, you were actually quite instrumental. I, I recently had Jillian McCann on the podcast, who roped me into Hindu studies. Uh, <laughs> and soon thereafter, um, when I started my master's, I met I met Dr. Dorn, I met you, Walter, at um, Annapurna Restaurant, I believe. <laughs> a, a, a gloriously peaceful uh, eatery on Bathurst, particularly for those interested in, in vegetarian fare. Lovely, lovely community there. Um, and uh, I remember this conversation vividly where I was pushing back because ahimsa, 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 you know, this, this, this is, this is, this is the, the pinnacle of, of human virtue, right? To, 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 to be this, 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 this sagacious figure who's always compassionate and does no harm. Um, but, you know, you pecked away at me and you were like, well, do you not want um, 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 do you want not want um, folks at the border protecting our borders? Do you not want police officers to carry arms? Do we not want locks in our doors? Um, and before I knew it, my interest in the Valmiki Ramayana and the ethics of violence in the epic, which I was already doing from my master's, was shaped by this thing you dumped into my world called just war theory. <laughs> <laughs> Say a little bit about that. I think it's important to, to, to contextualize this work. 
Right. So we'll touch a bit on the Christian tradition then. So if you look at the writings and the practice of Jesus Christ, um, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, as, as it's written in the Gospels and the Bible, you'll see that it's primarily a pacifist tradition. So the Ahimsa is really corresponds to that very well uh, of nonviolence. And, uh, you know, turn the other cheek and uh, the various example of Christ on the cross and that, that, that example. So then when it, um, when it came to um, the actual use of military force in, uh, in Rome, as uh, Christianity became the official religion of the state, then there, the theologians had to consider, well, we, we actually have to defend ourselves against, uh, say, the barbarians or the, the attackers. And they had to come up with some rules. When is it justified to use force? You can't just be pacifist or you'll be wiped out. So they came up with um, building on, on Roman tradition and, and other, other traditions. They came up with some ideas that you'd have a just cause. So um, interestingly enough, uh, St. Augustine uh, said that it wasn't a just cause to defend yourself, which is not current international law or current law, but he said you can defend others just as, as um, Jesus didn't defend himself. So you shouldn't defend yourself, but if you have to defend other people behind you, women and children and, and your, your neighbors, then you can use force. So they came up with just cause and, and then a whole bunch of other criteria came in addition. You have to have legitimate authority. You can't have roving gangs that are exerting force. You have to have proportionality of means. You have to have a net benefit for your um, use of force that, that in the end things will be better because of that. And you, they had uh, began a tradition of right conduct. And so what does it mean? Who can you target? Uh, you can't target uh, non-combatants. And this, this evolved over the centuries and, and grew as the criterion group till we have just war today, which has both the use ad bellum, that's the justification for going to war, and the use in bello, that is the justification for the use of force during war. And uh, the overlap with IHL is that IHL is, is, is concerned about um, use in bellow. And so the, um, this overlap is, uh, it, well, it's formed part of international humanitarian law today with drawing largely on Christian traditions, but others as well. And so the, uh, the Hindu faith um, has a lot to offer that discussion. And it, it's, um, as you say, it has the principle of ahimsa similar to Christianity with a pacifist approach. Uh, but it also has epics filled with war and violence. And the main characters are, um, are, are, are Kshatriya warriors. And so they have their own code of conduct. And so we have to look at how those codes of conduct compare between what's being developed in the West and in the East. And I find, like you, I find it a really fascinating intellectual area, but one of immense importance and so this is why I was really thrilled that the ICRC approached me, because here you could do intellectual work that actually has uh, actual importance on the ground for the, the, the uh, militaries uh, and the um, non-military forces that use armed force. That They can look at, at the provisions in their own faith and see the reflections and the similarities with uh, modern IHL and then therefore appreciate the IHL all the more. And it's also a form of language that you can use to, to talk with them because they'll, they'll see that, oh, this is really something that's, that's very close to my heart. That's my religion. And so they can, you can use that stream of argument or that stream of, of con 
conversation in order to move things forward. And I'm pleased to say that, uh, Raj, the paper that you and I drafted in the last few months, it's, uh, it's now being requested by the head of the Nepali military. So the, that, that's an example of where there's an indigenous interest in this kind of approach to the rules of armed conflict. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's relatively rare in academia that um, the, 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 uh, that our toil, our, our scholarly toil, is, is harnessed in, in, in a direct practical in humanities. I mean, there are obviously glaring exceptions to this generalization. So for me, it's, it's, it's quite fulfilling to have work um, where a, a, a larger audience um, sees its value or at least application. So that's, it's, it's a rare opportunity. So this is, this is why I would always try and make the time for this kind of work. You know, you, we, we had, um, I finished my master's and, then up being on the Valmiki Ramayana, and then there was a portion of it talking about the justification of violence. So essentially, just war in the Valmiki Ramayana. Um, uh, at the time, I was a master's student. Uh, you were a professor, so you were like, "Let's publish, let's publish." I was like, "Okay, I don't know what's going to happen here." And we submitted it to a journal, and and it got rejected. And for me, I was like, "Yeah, of course, it got rejected." I'm like, you know, a master's student. And meanwhile, this was just my own baggage because you know not a being able to see objectively what the paper was because you're seeing it through the lens of, of insecurity typically. Um, then we submitted it to a more prestigious journal. I thought, what is he thinking? I mean, <laughs> if they didn't accept it, this journal is not going to accept it. We submitted it to, to JAR, uh, Journal of the American Academy of Religion, and it was published. So I'm like, uh, that's an auspicious first publication, you know? Uh, and uh, I was very grateful for the opportunity and the encouragement at the time, but I think it bespeaks the. It, 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 there's interest in this, right? This is there's interest from a, a larger audience, and you know, from scholars of religion in general, or those who study ethics of violence. And I think it's it's quite easy to communicate the value of this work and why it's important to people on the ground. Um, we have been contacting some other scholars in the field who uh, just just serendipitously I was uh, interviewing Jeffrey Long and he said you know he he was contacted by ICRC and and also uh, last month I interviewed Jared Whitaker uh, about violence in in the Vedic hymns uh, uh, Indra and Soma etc um, and he too said he was in conversation so it sounds to me uh sounds to me, uh, Andrew, that like there's some networking going on and perhaps there's a, you have sort of a future development in mind. Uh, thanks, Raj. Yeah, we're just sort of in the exploratory phase, really, um, scoping out you know, who, who are the most important people to touch base with, whether they're interested, whether they're available. Um, who we need to engage with to, to, to make this project work because it's more than just an academic exercise ultimately um, you know we're starting with the academic sort of foundations we need to have solid foundations we need to understand what the texts say this is really important and, and a lot of people who work on the ground don't really appreciate that you know that the importance of these values you know to um, to, to sort of um, the, the practicalities of actually um, engaging in war or influencing behavior. Um, so yeah, we've touched base with a few people. Um, still early stages. 
Um, you know, we've touched base with people like Koshit Roy, um, also some IHL experts in, in India like uh, Sanoj Rajan and others, Umba Mahesh Satyanarayan, um, and he has a team there um, that are also sort of looking at the different aspects of this project. Um, so it's, it's all very exciting. Um, we, you know, we also want to, at some point, engage with, with, with militaries. Yeah, we don't, um, we would like to engage with religious leaders, not just academics. And, um, but we have, we have to start slowly. We have to start carefully. Um, um, and as we develop, we, we plan to arrange, um, a workshop at the end of this year um, in Angkor Wat in Cambodia, where we'll bring together um, uh, some scholars. We'll, we want to do a call for papers, um, so 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 you know, as well as your article, we want to you know to get um, other contributions from different perspectives. Um, we want to sort of go deeper into some of the channels, um, and and yeah, we need to bring together. Um, a multi sort of sexual group of people, um, including militaries, humanitarians, religious leaders, etc. We need to have all these different perspectives in the same room. So we, we've we've learned this, you know, from the project we've we've done on Islam and IHL and Buddhism and IHL. That you know, often a lot of these academics or military people there, it's a bit like an echo chamber, and you know, there's a lot of stuff when you bring them together. It's it's quite interesting what happens. Um, but some of this can be quite delicate as well. And, you know, we have to, as the ICRC, you know, we have to make sure that, you know, we have the trust of everyone we're working with and that everyone's on board. So this takes a bit of time to sort of generate. But so far, we've, uh, you know, great interest. As, as you say, um, as, as, as um, Walter has said, and as you, you've said, Raj, there's a great interest in this. A lot of people see the relevance. Um, you know, why haven't we done more of this before? I don't know. <laughs> there, there's, there's, there's something about, the, there's something about um, the zeitgeist, the times through which we're living, which we won't be able to see for probably a couple of hundred years. It's a transformative time. In my view, it is the, the official formation of a globe. Certainly the pandemic began, the, 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 the formal crystallization of that will take some decades to roll out. But now is a time when, when people like never before are interested in global conversations, are interested in um, questioning the, the roots of various aspects of culture um, and, 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 and cross-pollinating, right? uh, decolonizing perhaps. Um, this is the time for these conversations, it, it seems to me. Yeah, one thing I would perhaps add as well, I fully agree, and I think the goal for us is debate. You know, the goal for us is debate. If there's a debate going on at all different levels with people talking to each other from different perspectives, different cultures, etc., then then people are thinking about the conduct of war. They're thinking about it. You know, whatever they might think, at least they're thinking about it, and these ideas can circulate. And, and we believe this is the most effective way to, to really move forward. Now, how can this ultimately then be integrated into military training? It has implications for military ethics and all these kinds of things. You know, how do you integrate it? And of course, you know, research has shown that you know if you're a combatant, for example, then you're more likely perhaps to be swayed. I mean, military discipline is important, 
and 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 all of that. But recent research has shown that people are be more likely to be swayed by things that you know, uh, address their identities. You know who they are, how they perceive the enemy, etc., and how they perceive themselves vis-à-vis uh, -vis other people um, and their moral values. Yeah. Morals are much stronger, more potent motivating force uh, often than rules. And the thing about IHL is, that, I mean, it's, it's, IHL is a fantastic um, body of law. You know, it's, it's perhaps the most highly, I think it's the most highly, one of the most highly codified areas of international law and, and all of that. And it's, it's made, it's evolved considerably in recent years. It, it's, it's fantastic in many of the content is, is remarkable. And, and the fact that it's so widely ratified, it, it, you know, the main instruments have been universally ratified. That's remarkable. The problem is in actually making sure that it's uh, put into practice, that people actually comply with it in practice. That's the problem, because in an armed conflict situation, there's, there's, it's very difficult to enforce the rules. You know, who, who... Yeah, Andrew, I would buttress that by saying that it's a moral decision, but also a spiritual one. When you're pulling a trigger and you might cause another being to cease to exist, that is kill someone, or cause widespread destruction, uh, you have to think about why you're doing it. I think very deeply about whether, whether, whether this is something that's gonna um, be the right thing to do, which is of course moral, but also spiritual. It, you know, what's your, um, what is life and death? What happens after life? You know, this connects into the spiritual realm very easily. And so people start thinking about uh, spiritual principles when they see a colleague who's dying next to them and, and, and praying for them and, and, um, and, and praying to God. There, there's a very, um, in, in war, there's a, a, a huge religious dimension. And it's important that, that people uh, think about those things, not just at the moment of death, but they think about these things in advance. And many people do think about them because they think about what they have to do in their job. And so that dimension comes uh, really preponderant uh, at, at key moments. And so it's, um, it's extremely practical. Maybe the most practical thing is to think about what the, the consequences of your actions are. And that's where IHL helps give some, some uh, really great rules. And so do re the religious traditions. I fully agree, uh, Walter. Uh, and um, you know, when we were looking at the Buddhism and IHL recently, I mean, this is what came out very, very strongly is that you know, the, the support that religion and religious leaders or military chaptains, for example, can provide to combatants because it's not enough just to lay down the rules or, or then to and then to to see you know, how this might resonate with people's identities and, and moral values. But in high stress conflict situations, you know, people's cognitive functioning and I mean it, it you know it, it can be diminished and people are under high stress there's this fog of war scenario which is also a psychological phenomenon and a number of militaries have been experimenting with the use of meditation and mindfulness technologies in order to be able to um to, to help combatants to to be more situationally aware to improve their working memory to make so to make sure that they're that they're less highly stressed that they're that they're more you know, restrained in the way that they behave, and and, and also in just you know just you know, post conflict you know to treat um, PTSD and stuff like that. So this has come out very very strongly in the role of military chaplains. I mean, we're reaching out to, to a few military chaplains as well, and 
the role of military chaplains or indeed religious leaders, um, whether it's Buddhist monks or you know Hindu religious leaders and others in 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 consoling and supporting and comforting combatants, because I mean the religious motivation is often a core motivation for war. It's often a core motivation in terms of regulating it um, and in supporting and and upholding the morale of those who are involved. And uh, religion is often, you know, it's been seen as a force multiplier in many respects. You know, uh, even in relatively secular militaries. Fascinating. So regarding what was churned out recently about rooms of rules of armed conflict in, in, in Indian religions or in the, in the Hindu world, um, was there anything that, that, that struck you or surprised you about the recent paper and the recent findings presented for either one of you? Yeah, I mean, I could perhaps uh, start. I mean, what I find fascinating is is how explicit <laughs> so many of the rules are. And I mean, we're talking about IHL and the rules of IHL, and you know, it's in IHL, it, it's very clear that you don't target non-combatants and uh, things like this. Uh, in, in Hinduism, it's much more specific. You know, you don't attack people who are asleep. You don't attack those with dishevelled hair or those who are fearful or running away, or and this sort of thing. And this is, I find this absolutely fascinating. Those whose weapons are broken. Uh, and I, I, I like this level of detail. I mean, firstly, it shows that the people who are writing it really know what they're talking about in terms of, you know, the reality of armed conflict. I mean, they, 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 they seem to write from experience. Uh, so, so this is highly explicit. And, and as you mentioned, you know, as in, in the paper, this, I mean, what I find very fascinating, and I think it resonates, as Walter has said, with, with, with IHL and, and just war theory and stuff like that, is this tension between violence and nonviolence, this constant tension, uh, and the fact that so many of the protagonists in, in the Mahabharata and other epics, you know, they are they're sort of anguished by the situation that they're in. You know, and so so that's. I mean, I'll shut up for now, <laughs> but that's mm -hmm. just a couple of things for starters. <laughs> I think those are great points. Um, so, uh, Roger, because of the work that you and I did on the Ramayana and the Just War theory, we saw that uh, really the seven principles of Just War theory, um, as as we've enunciated them as seven, although we could have more or less, that these are were already in the Ramayana, not codified as such. But you could find uh, each of those principles was already in this ancient uh, Hindu script. So I wasn't a surprise when we found the same thing in the Mahabharata. Um, what was um, a, a bit uh, concerning was that we found in the Hindu tradition uh, writ large, not so much the religious side, but in the Dharma Shastras, the, um, some law codes, that there was a real politics stream. And it seemed to be in contrast to the epics. And tr trying to resolve that, you know, it's 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 kind of um, a difference between spirit and heart. That's the one side, and then a sort of very Machiavellian tradition that also exists in Hinduism. Hinduism not so much as a religion, but as a as a cultural stream, cultural and, and intellectual uh, stream of thought and, and practice too um, over the centuries. And so we very much, I mean, that is in parallel to our own liberal traditions and realist traditions. 
in international relations. Um, so I shouldn't have been surprised. But sometimes the, the contrasts just stare out at you and you're just saying, well, how do you resolve this? Well, that says something very fundamental about the human condition <laughs> that you know, we're, we're finding this in different traditions and they're all trying to grapple with this, this immensely uh, in, the, in the moment practical decision to get your selfish purposes ahead and then uh, compare that to a religious tradition whereby there's something beyond life and death and, and there are uh, factors that are, that are calling to a higher plane of consciousness in, in Hinduism or if we go back to Christianity at the same time. And uh, you have to reconcile those. And that's, that's also the, the, the truth of our daily life too, that we have to reconcile those, those very practical and spiritual um, levels at the same time. That point uh, deeply resonates. Um, it used to be quite vexing the contradictions I'd find in Hinduism, quote unquote contradictions, or or, or the absence of a grand unified theory. And now I, I chuckle to myself as I, I tutor courses at the OCHS, where uh, similarly folks are like, "Well, this doesn't make sense. It says it's here, and it says that there," and 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 now it. it why these texts are so gripping and why tradition so gripping is because they're mirroring the 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 the, the um the incessant complexities of life the, the unresolvable tensions that 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 um they're the basis of the human condition so what do we dispense with the, 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 this the, this this kind of spiritual um, imperative of, of nonviolence or do we dispense with the need to protect ourselves? I mean, was there ever a time in any, any crevice of creation where there weren't those interested in their self-interest at any cost? I mean, this is the, the text, the texture of tradition mirrors um, the complexities of life. So I really resonate with that. Andrew, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just, I, I thought you, it's such a good point that, that, uh, that, that Walt has made and, and, and you've made, Raj. I mean, I, I fully agree. I like these tensions. I don't like the idea necessarily that they're easy answers to, to any of these questions because, you know, wars are not easy situations. And and I think, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, we have the, the perspective of the Arthasastra, which is much more pragmatic in many respects. But, but you know, within that as well, I mean, there, there are elements of restraint, you know, the, this, this, this pragmatism can be more effective in some respects than this sort of unrealistic codes of chivalry, you know, that are completely impractical in, and stuff. So, and, and, you know, that are just for a particular caste, you know, the Chattria caste and this sort of thing. So I do find that there's, you know, there's, there's an interesting balance there between some things that are, uh, perhaps ideals that are sometimes a little bit unrealistic, perhaps in some respects, and, and then elements of the Arthasastra, which, you know, if applied, would actually reduce suffering, you know. And the fact, mm -hmm. for example, that in, sorry, that Cotillia has a lot of respect for soldiers that are not from the traditional warrior castes, you know, he's much more practical about, you know, if they're a good soldier, they're a good soldier. And mm -hmm. he, He's not hung up on these caste distinctions necessarily. If I'm, if I understand it correctly, I'm no expert. Well, it's um, I think it's important to bear in mind when looking to narrative uh, in general and, and and sort of the epics in particular. Uh, the Puranas, these tales of old, you know, these tales of gods and kings and magical things once upon a time. Whether we believe them to be literal or not, it's 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 um. You know, the question of whether they're descriptive or prescriptive, the question of whether they're, they're, they're describing a reality uh, versus prescribing one. Nevertheless, what's palpable 
in these texts is, uh, is, is sort of an ethical ethos, values, value, you squeeze them and values come out, right? <laughs> this is the lifeblood of the text. They're, they're made to, to, to sort of uh, dramatize and inculcate and perpetuate particular values. You know, this is the chivalrous code. I cannot strike you because you're disheveled. Well, so great is my honor, right? So do we take that as, oh, that was literal, or do we take this as a narrative strategy? And um, for me, you know, uh, those are for smart people like you two to figure out. For me, it's a question <laughs> of understanding the, the ethos behind it. Um, I had promised to make space uh, in this podcast for us to trade spaces a bit. So um, because I was also part of the work, at least the most recent sliver of the work that you both have been engaged in for, 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 for quite some time, um, you may have questions for me that you'd like to ask and you're welcome to. Uh, Roger, I think I'll, I'll follow up on that conversation uh, precisely because uh, you may say you refer to us, but we, <laughs> we refer to you. Um, so how do you reconcile the Artha Shastra with the epics? I mean, what, uh, what, I mean, I know you're wrestling with it like we all are. And uh, Andrew made some excellent points that there are some very helpful material in the Artha Shastra. Um, but it, at times it just seems uh, Artha Shastra and Kutilya are pretty cutthroat and entirely self-interested uh, and, and, and don't consider spiritual values. And yet they're part of Hinduism. We consider Hinduism not just you know, the spiritual side, but it, it also has this, this tradition that is very, um, you know, laws of Manu and the uh, very codification of laws. So how do you reconcile them? I, I mean, uh, we're all wrestling with it, but I'm gonna throw that one back to you. Yeah, the, a couple of things come to mind um, with respect to Hinduism in particular. Um, it, it's come to the point that whenever I see the word Hinduism now, in my mind, I stop thinking of a tradition like Islam or, or Judaism or Christianity. You know, that might be more comparable to Vedanta or perhaps even Shaivism. Whenever I see the word Hinduism, I think of like an umbrella term, like something Asian, for example, or something uh, Pacific. Like it's, 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 it's this huge term. Uh, that that is a, a catch basin for so many tributaries. Um, but it, it, with respect to the particular rules and attitudes we find, uh, in my in my perspective, um, there is such a thing as a human condition, and there are different stripes. And this is something I see in scholarship, in meetings, in coaching. There are different vasanas, there are different proclivities. There are those who are cutthroat. There will always be an aspect of humanity which is like this or has this archetypal impulse and you will see it either um, demonized or chastised or codified in various world tr traditions there are those who who are idealists right there are those who etc 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 so uh, i don't reconcile them uh, um, in my personal view, they don't need reconciling insofar as they re they reflect, these strands reflect different impulses of the human experience. But it's important to understand which aspect of a tradition is trying to speak for the values of that tradition. So um, 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 in Arthashastra is presenting rules on how to get what you want but without denigrating the loftier, perhaps arguably more spiritually inclined texts, right? So this is how I view it, but 
what do I know? <laughs> that's very that's very interesting indeed. Yeah, I had a sort of a bit of a question. I don't know if we have time to sort of tackle it really, but I, you know, because IHL is a you know it's a body of law, and uh, it's it's highly codified and it's very organised and it's you know. You, and so that doesn't, there are a lot of positives about that, obviously. I mean, it's, it's, it's a major achievement in that respect. And we look at the Hindu tradition and the, in, the Indic traditions, and as you say, it's so multivocal and amorphous. And this is, the, 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 this is what's so interesting. And it has these the Hindu jungle. I call it the Hindu jungle. <laughs> Indeed, I like that term a lot. So, I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, in, in, when we're talking about all of this, I mean, do you, you know, how do we condense this? I mean, can we condense it into simple rules that are understandable, uh, can be uh, for, 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 for combatants? Um, or is it, is it an ethical thing? Is it more sort of in the realm of ethics? Or is it, is it external rules? Or is it internal, uh, you know, yeah, is it an internal I, psychological thing? Yeah. These are, you know, it's, this is fascinating to me. And I... So so I see that as related to something you said earlier in conversation. Um, when you say that, hey, people are motivated towards uh, a warfare or, or you know, towards you know, armed conflict, they're, they're motivated not by rules, not by the, the top of mind intellectual computing bit. They're motivated by the more subconscious um, um, ethics bit, values, morals. Right. So I see as the most longstanding and powerful aspects of tradition um, as the ones which inculcate unconsciously, in particular through narrative and examples. Right. Um, that's one piece that's very important, I believe. Another piece is that there is a distinction in my mind between rules and principles. So rules are more like um, switches for me. You know, do this, don't do this. Stop when it's red, go when it's green. Principles are avoid getting killed, will you? So maybe, you know, uh, in the middle of rush hour in Toronto, you're not going to go when it's red, right? Sunday morning, 7 a.m., not even the church goers are out yet. Go, because the principle is preserved even if the rule is broken. So, in my perspective, Hinduism deals more with principles. And so, the application of those principles sometimes look um, jarring. You know, what comes to mind is Bhishma, the wise Bhishma, who's, who says, Dharma is subtle. To understand the principle of righteousness behind each act, it's a very subtle thing. And sometimes it looks like vice, but it may well be more virtuous than, than not maybe the least of the evils, right? So this is, these are some of the deliberations that come to mind when I think about this. I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but hopefully- Raj, if I may add a, a sm small element here, uh, which I think you touched upon, is that um, stories, narrative, those can touch you in ways that rules can't. You know, think about the millions of, uh, uh, of Indian children who know about the Mahabharata, who may not know the rules of armed conflict, they may not know, you know what the Arthas Shastra says, but they know about Arjuna and Krishna. And, and so, so these, these are kind of like examples. It's often in the life we learn more through examples than through the statement of the rules. And the epics uh, come across with huge amount of honor 
You know, even though it culminates in a big battle, the the lead up to the battle was all about trying to avoid war. And the battle itself was about how to fight war in a honorable fashion. And it shows both through the examples of good behavior and bad behavior, you know, where some people did some horrible things like, like uh, you know, going at night and, and killing people in, in the tents in order to, and accidentally killing children. Um, but that still is, you know, it shows the horror of it and the, the response to that. These are all examples that, that can help cr create a feeling that, it, that uh, transcends, as you, as you would put it, transcends the rule book. Well, the rule, rules are interesting. The examples are, are really potent. And so it's valuable, as we did in the paper, to look at both the, um, the epics and the uh, Dharma Shastras and the Artha Shastras. And stories are how we condition people from a very young age, whether we realize it or not. Mm -hmm. Stories have morals, and the moral of the story is, right? Uh, and and whether or not we bring that to the con one of the things I do is 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 I look at um, uh, Indic stories, Indian mythology, if you will. I teach them and I teach through them. And some of the courses that I teach, particularly more so at my online school, um, uh, I, I look at mythological stories and then try to show the insight in them, the rules, the principles of the story is talking about. And then when it comes in the conscious mind, it's like, oh, there's that aha moment for that conscious clinching. But even before it entered the conscious mind, if someone grew up with that story, they would have unconsciously um, received that message on some level, you know, which is, it's fascinating. It, it endlessly fascinates me. Um, have you grilled me enough? Or do you have more questions? <laughs> Yeah, well, I think it's very good answers. <laughs> I mean, I would just from my side, yeah, I think it's really interesting what you say about rules and principles. And I mean, of course, IHL also has principles, simple principles, you know, proportionality, distinction between competence and non-competence. Well, this helps it helps to make it more intelligible. Um, case studies are often used in in training, but yeah, I think I think you know, there's a lot of scope to to do more of this. And as Walter says. You know, some of the stories, and, and you said yourself, Rajan, in the Mahabharata and these epics, I mean, these are often more inspiring than all of the stuff that, that you know, that, that might be taught um, elsewhere, perhaps. So I think, you know, we need to, and we need to find stories that resonate in different cultures as well, you know, be different stories. And so, I mean, this, this for us is fascinating. And... Um, yeah, and I think some of the, you know, the heroes of the Mahabharata and these figures, they're more real to many combatants than uh, flesh and blood contemporaries in some respects. This is one of the responses I give. I mean, it, it, it's a challenging thing to do. Uh, it's, it's, it's not without its occupational hazards teaching religion in the public sphere, right? And so um, I, I regard... Uh, put on as an ethics as loosely what we think of as mythology it's much more complex than that um, but um, if I use the word itihasa uh, purana most people know what I talk about if I use the word mythology someone may find that offensive from an emic paradigm of thinking well no no this this is history this happened on the earth plane and what I like to say is regardless of how we think of it whether or not we believe that Arjuna and Krishna walk the earth or this occurred in some alternate spiritual universe or these are products of imagination, for me, irrespective of that question, that's the wrong order of analysis. The more potent order of analysis is what's the theme? What's the message? What's the lesson? 
Why is this being told? Why does this captivate us? Whether or not we believe it's literal or not. That's the real power of, of myth, so to speak, the power of story. Um, I think we've taken enough of your time for one day. <laughs> Was there anything else about the project or project's mission mandate that you, you hope we touch on today? Well, I mean, no, thank you very much, Raj. I mean, for me, it's been fascinating and it's good to talk about. I mean, we're in the early stages and there's a lot more to do and um, we'll just sort of see how it develops. But um, I think for now, perhaps I'll leave it at that. And as things pick up momentum, we can still start communicating about it more and more. And yeah, there might be some of your listeners that are interested in, in this. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we'd like to, you know, generate some momentum behind this. but. Um, yeah, it's a slow build. <laughs> well, in the link, uh, in the podcast notes, we'll link the CRC site and whatever other literature you might want to disseminate. So you'll find that in the podcast notes. And Dr. Dorner, was there anything else you wanted to say before we closed? Uh, just an expression of gratitude to you, Raj, for hosting us and for, um, for being a partner in this, in this fascinating work uh, for this exploration. And, and thank you to the ICRC for reaching out uh, to scholars who are interested in religion as we are, and um, for the immensely important work that they do in the field. And I'm very grateful for that. And the opportunity for me as what I call an operational professor, someone who wants to have an impact on operations in the field, this is a great opportunity. And like you, Raj, I was very busy at the time, but I just couldn't turn down such a great opportunity to, to be of service to the ICRC cause, which is really the cause of humanity. Well, we're very glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's to more, more collaborations. Um, for those of you listening, um, this fascinating conversation has featured uh, Dr. Walter Dorn, Professor of Defense Studies at the Royal Military College, um, along with uh, Andrew Bartle-Smith, uh, who is the ICRC, the International Committee for the Red Cross, global affairs uh, department leader in Asia. Um, we've been speaking about uh, this important and timely work of, of, of engaging the world's traditions in general and Hinduism in particular um, in international humanitarian law and concerns about war and peace on the globe. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening and keep contemplating the ethics of violence. Take care.